This is Kate Turkington on Travels with Kate. 101.9 High FM, I'm Kate Turkington and a very, very good afternoon to you. And I'm going to be talking first of all today because you know we talk travel, we talk with interesting people about travel and of course we talk books towards the end of the programme. But seeing as Morocco got into the last uh, is it eight? The last eight, the quarterfinals, yes. I'm just looking at my uh, producer, Harry, here, because I watched the match. Seeing as Morocco has got into the quarterfinals of the World Cup, I thought, and also because it's such a wonderful country to visit, I'm going to talk about Morocco today. I want you to close your eyes, or if you're stirring the gravy or making pancakes, just stop for a minute, because I want to paint a word picture of Morocco. So I want you to imagine snow-covered mountains nearly 2,000 metres high, deep gorges with rushing rivers, very, very barren, rocky landscapes also descending into deep green valleys, long, long belts of palm trees, date palms, and among those date palms are scattered, and it really is, sounds sounds a bit dilly to say that mud buildings are fabulous, but the mud buildings of the Casbahs and the fortified villages are absolutely amazing. I'll tell you a bit more about those uh, later on. And think about those ancient camel caravan routes that reached from the royal cities of Marrakesh and Fez. They went right the way across the Sahara. Just think about that. The Sahara is a very, very big desert. They went right across the Sahara to Timbuktu, to Niger, Tunisia, and to old Sudan. What did they carry? They carried gold, they carried jewels, they carried slaves uh, in those days, well into the 19th century. Now, come away from the desert and the mountains and the ravines and think about little seaside towns. They're white buildings gleaming in the sun. They almost look like children's building blocks, like little white Legos, some of these little uh, villages. And then there are forts, going back to the desert for a moment, like French Foreign Legion forts, standing very lonely under a very, very uh, blazing blue sky. And then, of course, towering dunes of the Sahara, not as high as those ones I was telling you about last week in Namibia, but still pretty impressive. And in my mind's eye, I can still see a camel train going along one of those ridges. They're very dignified camels. Last time I was in Morocco, I stayed in the Sahara for a couple of nights in tents. They were quite luxury tents, I must tell you. And the rest of my friends went off at dawn to ride camels into the Sahara at dawn. But I didn't want to go. I had ridden camels before in the great tar desert in India next to Pakistan. Anyway, I thought I'd stay behind. So they said, well, please keep and uh, sit and keep your camel um, company. And they gave me a camel called Bob Marley. 
and Bob Marley and I sat there for about an hour and a half, eyeing one another. Camels have a very sneery uh, sort of face. There he sat... There we sat, Bob Marley and me. He was talking camel. I wasn't really talking anything as the dawn came up over the Saharan dunes. It was absolutely uh, fabulous. And then you can go into the Medinas, the markets and the marketplace. They're like an enclosed warren of houses and shops and schools and mosques and fountains and bakeries and public baths and oh and life has been going on there for thousands of years in exactly the same way and the little streets in the medinas are very narrow you have to sort of walk one at a time you can't walk two abreast and suddenly you hear clip clop clip clop and it's the little hooves of the donkeys who are carrying bales of merchandise on their back and you hear balek balek they all shout balek and you have to press your back against say one of these ancient walls as this, as this little uh, donkey trots by. And no vehicles, uh, of course. And all sorts of other wonders to see in uh, Morocco. I mean, for such a small country, the cultural, the geographic, the natural diversity. One of the highlights for me, and you may find this quite surprising because I'm actually not... Well, I do love going into sacred buildings, ancient sacred buildings. This wasn't particularly an ancient sacred sacred building. It was the Hassan II Mosque in Casablanca. It's the 13th largest in the world. Now, I'm going to tell you something that will give you the idea of the scale. Think of this mosque. You could fit St. Peter's in Rome inside it. That's how big it is. It's huge. 25,000 worshippers, 80,000 in the courtyards outside, and you're allowed to go in. You don't have to be Muslim. Anybody can go in. And what I remember most of all is some of the floors in the mosque are made of glass. So you go in and you look down and there's the ocean. There's the ocean beneath your feet because it's built on built on a peninsula. Quite a remarkable uh, place to go to. And then I'm an absolute, I don't know what the word is, fundy, fan, sucker, whatever you call it, for Roman ruins. I love the ancient Roman cities. I've been to so many, Jurassian, Jordan, Pula in Croatia, all over the world, Mallorca. There's some wonderful Roman cities there. And, of course, in Israel, there's uh, Caesarea, which, interestingly enough, I only found out when I was there, is the site of the nautical college of the Israeli navy. And, you know, those Roman cities, the Romans knew what they were doing. The aqueducts that still work, the marketplaces, the forum of fora where people used to meet. And, of course, the wonderful mosaic pavements. And in in uh, this particular one, Volubilis, which is built on a hill, you can see it from miles around. You can see the pillars 
beautiful, beautiful tessellated tiled uh, floors with elephants and tigers. And I mean, the Romans got about a lot. Let's face it, they were all over the world at uh, one stage. And then you go to one of those little seaside villages I was talking about bit bigger than a village. There's one called Eswara. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it in exactly the uh, right way, but it was actually built by the same architect who designed the Port of St. Mar in Brittany in France. But there's Portuguese art, uh, architecture, there's French architecture, um, and then, of course, the Medina. That that sort of walled centre of all the little towns with the narrow streets and the cobbled uh, alleyways. And then you're right back in quintessential Morocco uh, when you're there. Great place to eat fish. If you love fish, my word, that's a great place to eat fish. And the sun and the sky, it's, it's so beautiful uh, to be there. And then going back to those mud buildings I was telling about, the Casbahs, they're essentially fortified villages, but they're, they, although they're massive, they're built out of the local mud. And I can't tell you how many movies have been filmed there. I know Gladiator... Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Jesus of Nazareth, Game of Thrones. They've all been filmed there, or parts of them have all been filmed there in Morocco. Morocco. Why? Because you've got a superb climate, hot in the day, it can be very cold at night in the desert, and these wonderful, uh, wonderful scenery that you don't have to build up in a studio. It's all there. It's all there for you. And, of course, the royal city of Fez where the leatherworks, you smell the dye pits before you even get to them, and all kinds of leatherware, from bags to slippers, and all bought for a song. And lamps, <laughs> the lamps you see in Aladdin's Aladdin. I actually carried a lamp all the way back from Fez to South Africa, and it sits in my little sitting room uh, as we speak. You will not be able to stop yourself buying uh, something or the other. So you've got mountains, you've got beaches, you've got casbars, souks, of course, are the mountains. And these are proper souks. They're not like the artificial ones like they have in Dubai and Doha and whatever. These are the real thing. These are the, the original souks. You've got the gorges, wonderful gorges. You've got the palm trees, the palmeries, it's called. There's absolutely everything there. And something, a town you have to go to, of course, is Marrakesh. Marrakesh is like the beating heart of Morocco. I stood in the marketplace and they draped a python around my neck. I think it was drugs because it didn't try and wrap itself around me or bite me. But I do have a picture of Kate with a very, very long, large python uh, wrapped around me. There are fortune tellers, there are singers, there are jugglers. There's, it, it's like, if you think of the market in Harry Potter and double it and double it and double it, you get some a, a kind of idea of what that marketplace is like in Marrakesh. But do you know who built his home there? I mean, in a way, it's understandable. In another way, who would have thought it? Yves Saint Laurent. 
the French fashion designer built his house there, Villa Oasis, with the Marjorelle Gardens around it. You have to go there. It's all painted in a bright cerulean blue. Bright, bright. Think of a blue sky. The bluest sky you can think of. That's how Yves Saint Laurent's house is painted. It may sound a bit overwhelming, but it isn't. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's sumptuous. It's it's not tatting, as you can imagine. Uh, and it never looks uh, out of place. And when he lived there before he died, he had all his staff doll in specially designed Yves Saint Laurent uh, Moroccan costumes. So you must go when you're in Marrakesh to the Villa Oasis. And then just finally, the cats of Morocco. Why cats? Apparently, the only known picture, painting, I don't know, it's an engraving, I haven't seen it or what, but the only known representative of the Prophet Muhammad has him holding a cat. So, Cats are precious. Everywhere you go, they have first-class status. They're sleeping in dark corners. They're meowing for food. They're, they're roaming around souks and restaurants. They're dozing on piles of very colourful Berber rugs. Oh, they're just absolutely everywhere. And just finally, the generalities. Well, the plumbing doesn't always work. Uh, the food, the food is great, but not always up perhaps to uh, what you might expect it to be. Very difficult sometimes to get wine or beer. Obviously, you don't go during Ramadan when you can't have uh, any. Uh, but the local people have been dealing with tourists for thousands, I suppose, of years, so you'll get a you'll get a great, great uh, welcome there. So if you haven't been to Morocco and you're eager to see and find out and learn new things, I really can recommend it, and I promise you, I promise you, you won't be disappointed. This is Kate Turkington on Travels with Kate. 101.9 High FM, I'm Kate Turkington, and of course we're talking travel. We talk all kinds of travel. We've been talking about Morocco, we've been talking about Namibia, we've talked about Malta. Oh, the world is such a big place and we've got so many places to go to together and see together. But this week I'm talking about Medikwe game reserve in Northwest Province. Maybe you know it. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you haven't. If you don't know anything about it, first of all, it's only four hours drive from Johannesburg on good roads. Uh, and perhaps a big, big bonus, particularly if you've got grandkids or if you've got youngsters who are about to do exams or whatever, it's malaria-free. So you can go any time of the year and not have to worry about uh, malaria. It's one of South Africa's, in fact, largest reserve. Got the big five, not only the big five, and my guess is going to be telling us much more in a moment, but it's also got cheetah and wild dog. And you know how Sabi sand, if you are a bushgoer, uh, 
If you go to Sabi Sand and Pumalanga, you're practically guaranteed to see leopards. You really are. Think about Medikwe. If you go to Medikwe, you're almost... In the bush, you can never guarantee everything, of course, but you're almost guaranteed to see the painted wolves, the wild dogs of Africa, and that's always very special. But joining me today, this afternoon, is Caroline Lucas. And why am I talking to Caroline? Because she owns a bush camp in Medique, and it's a camp like no other. And I'm going to say it because she probably won't, but of all the camps and lodges I've been to in South Africa, and I could reel off hundreds, actually, it's one of the very few genuine, eco-friendly camps. Anyway, good morning, Caroline. Welcome. Good morning, Kate. Thank you. And I would say that too. <laughs> now tell us about your camp, what it's called and what it's all about. Okay, our name is Mosetla Bush Camp. Um, we are named after the Mosetla, it's the Setswana word, for which is the Mosetla tree, um, which is the Peltiforum Africanum or weeping wattle. And we are built around a huge Mosetla tree, practically in the middle of Medique Game Reserve. Um, as you say, the only eco-lodge in Medique, and also a, 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 an authentic bush camp. Um, it's built on the, on the premise of, of do no harm, basically. So it's, um, we conserve the surrounding flora and fauna, um, and it's built in, in rock and wood and thatch. It is just part of the bush. It is unfenced, and we have we don't have electricity. We use sustainable energy um, alternatives. We have gas fridges and freezers. We have paraffin lanterns, um, and it's all it's all just part of nature. Just, just Caroline, then what happens if you've got no electricity and I'm taking all these fantastic photos of fantastic game and whatever, and I need to charge my camera on my phone? So we are staff houses. We have um, solar panels. So you leave your, your camera or your laptop in, in the LARPA for us and we'll take it back. We'll charge it up over a couple of hours and it'll be back for you for for the next drive or to download or whatever you need it for. Okay. And you say the camp isn't fenced, and I do know from experience you've got like an elephant tripwire around the fence, which is at yes, the yes. height of an There's elephant a six foot chest. A bit shorter than an elephant. <laughs> um, it's about six foot high, and it's a, it's a, a double strand. So it just the only animals that can't come through the camp are, are the elephants, which we, we put that fence up so that they wouldn't come in and take our water. Um, we, we bring fresh water in from a borehole uh, every day and hold them in big bowsers around the camp. Um, and during drought times, the, the Ellies would come in and, and uh, yeah, drink straight out of the bowsers. So what do you have so, coming in? To, I mean... Are you going to have lions and wild dogs and leopards coming into camp where people are? We we have had everybody through there. We've had everybody through, um, but generally we get the uh, the zebras and uh, kudu, impala, buffalo, um, who come and drink from our little bird bath. And I know um, it's I, it's not very often that we get that we get the big five coming through coming through. 
but I do we, remember we through. <laughs> I do remember watching, uh, seeing some photos. I think you put up on Facebook where one day you had wild dogs on the one side of the accommodation and lions on the other. <laughs> what had happened is that the wild dogs had chased a kudu into our lapa. And they'd, they'd killed the, the, the kudu in the lapa. There were no guests in camp at the time, unfortunately. Everybody was out on drive. We had to call them back to come in, to come and have this amazing sighting. <laughs> the people are quite So, yes, safe. everybody can come through. Oh, yes. Oh, you, you're completely safe. The animals are not, not looking to come through the camp um, to find us. Um, and, the, and generally, so the, the lions and the wild dogs, they sort of come through in the evening, at night, overnight, which is why we have potties in the in the cabins, so that you don't need to leave your cabin to go to the loo at night. You mean you've got the old-fashioned chamber pot? Yep, a gazanda. <laughs> but if you do want to, you, what are your ablutions like? I mean, they're quite private, aren't they? They're quite private. Um, they're not in the camp because we don't, we don't actually have running plumbed water at the lodge. Um, as I say, we, we bring in um, fresh water every day and you take a bucket of water from a bowser, you pour it through a donkey boiler to heat it up and then, then you have a safari shower. So we don't have um, flush toilets and, and, and plumbed showers um so they're set a bit a, a bit away from the from from the cabins um our toilet is called a, a vip unit it's a ventilation improved pit um which is very eco-friendly and uses very little water um but it's not the kind of thing you could have in your cabin inside the room okay and the so they're showers set discreetly and the showers are so it's a bucket shower or a safari shower where you where you heat your water through a donkey, you carry your bucket of warm water through to the shower, um, and you fill uh, you fill a, a me, the metal, the metal bucket, haul it up, and there's a there's a rose underneath a shower rose underneath, and you switch it on and have a very nice shower. Um, they run for about five minutes, so it's not one of your three hour luxury <laughs> luxury showers standing under steaming water it's a five minute shower um but yeah very good what if you were a bit creaky on your pins or didn't want to lift a bucket of water <laughs> kate i will do it for you there are there are, we've got loads of staff around um and of course we'll help you with with any of those kinds of things no, I was or just... even if you just don't feel like it even if you just don't feel like it you can ask somebody to make your make your shower for you and and what caroline what are the joys of coming to an eco camp like this? You're, you're, you are at one with nature, basically. Yeah. So, well, the joys of, of the joy, one of the biggest joys of coming to Medique is the exclusivity, um, where only people who are booked into a lodge can even enter the reserve. Um, and, and so once you're with us, once you get to us, you are you're completely isolated. You leave your car at the Parks Board Head Office. We fetch you from there and we bring you back to the lodge. So you really are, um, yeah, isolated and at one with nature. And so your game drives when we take you out. 
there are no there are no other there are no private vehicles driving around Medique. So you have the, that exclusivity, and you also have the exclusivity of of we have no. We, we can't see any other lodges. Nobody can drive past us. We are completely private. Also, you sit right in the middle of the reserve. Yes. When we're nestled at its very heart. Literally, when you look at the map, we are we are the dot in the middle. So because we, we built there, because we didn't need to be uh, anywhere near any of the power lines or pipelines, because we, we'd always planned to be an eco-lodge. So and we and we really are. It's a it's a safe little haven, and it's in a block with not a lot of roads. So this is why we we get so many animals visiting the camp as well because there's an, animals around us because they are they're not bothered by the roads and the vehicles. It's it's a it's a it's a safe space. And and you've just not you but. Johnny, one of your staff, has just won the most amazing, amazing award. Tell us about Johnny, first of all, before you tell us about the award. Okay. So Johnny Johnny is um, a local guide, Johnny Motsielwa. He has been with us for 20 years. He lives locally um, and has, has a family locally. So all, all our staff actually are from the local villages. Yes, as I say, he's been with us for 20 years. He's our head field guide. He won, uh, it's the Wonderlust Specialist Guide Award. Um, He came third. I think there were 86 entries globally. Yeah. So this is a global global award and he came third as the best field guide. He came third in the world as the best specialist guide. So we are so chuffed. Um, and what does he do when you go out with him? What would be so special about him? About Johnny? Well, both of our guides, we, we have, a, both of them are exceptional guides. Johnny, as I say, 20 years, and Justice has been with us for 10 years. Um, and they they take you out into their world. They say, well, I mean, when you when you go out on your first drive, they say, you know, welcome to my office. <laughs> and the, and they then, they take you out and this is this is their world. They know they know the bush. They know the animals. They're both, as I say, they're both locals. So, th- so they they really know their way around, and they have exceptional knowledge and experience. Everything from the the stars to the soils, to the to the mammals, birds, insects. There's often a picture of Johnny with a chameleon, um, and they'll be driving home at night with a spotlight, and they'll see a chameleon in a tree. They just have, yeah, they have amazing, amazing eyesight and amazing vision. What about poaching in Medique, Caroline? I mean, Medique, I think it was the translocation of animals called when when the farmland... Operation was, Phoenix. Operation Phoenix, how appropriate yeah. for the bird that rises <laughs> from the ashes should be, yeah. should be the symbol. And when did all this happen? When did all that farmland become a game reserve? That was 1991, when it was it was the, the farmland was bought up and fenced, and it was actually bought up by the Putatswana Parks Board. This was still the this was still Putatswana in 1991. It was only 94 when when it. it that became part of South Africa and, and fell into the Northwest Province and the Northwest Parks Board. So the Bobak Parks Board bought it up, put a fence around it, and they populated it with 16,000 head of game, 
which obviously is replenished over the over the years. And yes, they brought they brought in they brought in elephants from Gonorrhoea Zoo. They brought in lions. They brought in the wild dogs. I think the only things that really occurred there naturally, and they've never brought in, were were leopard, um, and then things like baboons and warthogs. But most of the other prey species they they bring in. And Caroline, your guests, obviously, and I know that you're a very, very affordable camp. I know when people think safari lodges, they think, oh, they're so expensive, are we ever going to be able to go there? I know, you know, without quoting actual prices, I know yours is very, very affordable. So where do your guests come from? Yeah, it is the most affordable rate in Medique, um, by quite a long way. Um, and did you say you don't want me to mention price? No, 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 because they could okay, change it. no problem. I, yeah. Oh, no, they won't. <laughs> but your um, guests. So, <laughs> so pre-COVID, so pre-COVID, we were, we were sitting at about 80% international guests. And then, but then obviously during COVID, we were, we were made almost all South African guests. And we're, we're getting back to now, um, back to majority internationals again. Um, we actually have a two-tier uh, rate where there's a standard rate charged for international guests, and then we do a, a quite a heavily discounted rate for local South Africans. I'm listening to you and listening to about Mosetla. By the way, that you spell it, Caroline. I always get the spelling yes, wrong. Yes, it's the Setswana spelling, so it's not how you would imagine it's spelled. It's M-O-S-E-T-L-H-A. Spell it again. M-O-S-E-T-L-H-A. H-A. Masetla, after the Masetla tree. And I know, you know, I know from my own work and research that the travel world now is looking at more experiential stuff. People don't want to go always, maybe sometimes, and be cocooned away from the bush in luxury surrounded. In Masetla, you're in the heart of the bush and you've got absolutely everything there for you. And you are comfortable and the food is great. Yes, and the food is all, all prepared on the open fire. Um, and it's it's traditional South African food. It's like a braai or a baboiti, a poiki. You know, everything is, is, is traditional bush fare. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you, Caroline. And if you are looking for a really... Authentic, I think you saw it, Caroline used, on authentic bush experience. You will be comfortable. You will have your showers. You will have great food. You're going to have one of the best guides in the whole of South Africa. It is very uh, affordable, and it's only four hours. If you do live in Johannesburg or roundabouts, it's only four hours from Johannesburg, and it's malaria-free. This is Kate Turkington on Travels with Kate. 101.9 High FM. I'm Kate Turkington. We were talking about Morocco there. But this section of the program, this last section of the program, I like to talk about books. And it's books I think you might enjoy. I'm not going to be talking about chiclet or, or stuff that's not well written. I'm sorry, I'm a bit of an intellectual snob. And I mean, there's the most popular literature can be extremely uh, well well written. So whatever I choose, 
It's something I've enjoyed, and I think you will enjoy too. And what I'm talking about today is a book by Maggie O'Farrell. Some of you may already know her because she won the National Book Critics Circle Award. She won the Woman's Prize for her last novel called Hamnet. And I'm sure some of you are shaking your heads and saying, yes, you read that. Remember, it was about the life and death early death of Shakespeare's son, total fiction, but it won so many awards and it was so, so readable and you were transported back into that world, that 16th century world of Elizabethan England, the sights, the smells, the colours, and Shakespeare's wife, Agnes, who I didn't know before I read it, and apparently it is uh, factually correct. She was like a medicine woman. She she knew all the herbs. She knew the potions. She knew how to heal people when they were sick. I didn't know anything about her uh, before I read that. But the new novel is called The Marriage Portrait, The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. And it's distributed by Jonathan Ball in South Africa. And you will certainly find it top of the pile this time of year in most good bookshops wherever you go. And this new novel of hers, she's an absolute wonder at historical fiction. This is set in Renaissance Italy. So we're looking at 15, 1560, 70, 1550s, that kind of, that kind of time. And it's about the 15-year-old Duchess Lucretia de Medici. Let me get that right. Lucretia de Medici. She was the third daughter of that very, very famous, infamous Duke of uh, Medici, the ruler of Florence. And she was, in fact, just moving away from the novel for a moment, she was, in fact, a real person. And she was married off to Alfonso, the Duke of Ferrara, when she was 13. And why was she married then? Because her sister was supposed to get married to him and died the night before the wedding. So there was a very, very hasty arrangement made. And poor little Lucretia, uh, was then married to Alfonso, the Duke of Ferrara. And so these great dynasties were uh, enjoined. Remember, Italy in those days was a bunch of warring states. You had Ferrara, you had Florence, you had all those other states. It wasn't one unified country. So all the dukes were always trying to get the upper hand over all the other Dukes. Anyway, she was a real person. She really was married to Alfonso. But then, also factually, she died very, very mysteriously, supposedly of TB. But it's long, long been alleged that actually Alfonso poisoned her. Why? Because she didn't give him an heir. And if you were a duke, your first duty to your citizens and your state was to produce male heirs. Girls didn't count, you had to produce a male heir. And some of you may remember, particularly if you studied English at any stage, that poem by Robert Browning called My Last Duchess. Very famous poem. It's uh, it's very ironic and it's like a monologue. And you may 
may remember it just starts off in his in his words, in his voice. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive, he says. And then the poem goes on to say she had her portrait painted, but perhaps she smiled too much at the painter. Perhaps she was too ready with all her smiles, as if, and he says the Duke, as if she ranked my gift of a 900-years-old name with anybody's gift. Arrogant piece of work, the Duke of uh, Ferrara. Anyway, the novel takes us to Ferrara, takes us with Lucretia into this new court. She doesn't know anybody. The, the secrets are whispered behind walls. She's not allowed to take her own servants with her. Can you imagine this very young girl being put into this, these circumstances where she's alone, she's frightened, and she suddenly gets the idea into her head that the Duke's going to kill her. She's got no factual evidence of this. She just sort of feels it in her bones. As my Irish landlady used to say, she feels it in her waters. She feels it in her bones that he's going to uh, kill her. And she doesn't really know who the Duke is. He can be charming, he can be playful, he can be a ruthless politician, he can be somebody before even his sisters tremble, and his sisters are very nasty uh, pieces of work. So she begins to suspect that she's to die. And uh, Maggie O'Farrell writes that she feels his presence beside her as if a, a dark feathered bird of prey has suddenly alighted on the arm of her chair. So you get that, you get that picture of this young frail girl and death sitting on the chair beside her like a bird of uh, prey. And her only communication and the only person she has any relationship with is the apprentice of the portrait painter. The portrait painter's a very arrogant old, you know, been there, done there. I can paint portraits. I've painted portraits of everybody in my time. But in fact, he doesn't do the work. It's his apprentice who's mute, can't speak, called Jacobo, that uh, Lucretia strikes up a relationship with. They just smile at one another, they exchange glances, maybe he arranges the hem of her uh, sleeve. And she's having his portrait painted and she's in these stiff wedding clothes. They are made of gold. Actual gold is woven into the fabric. Can you imagine this little girl sitting there in these stiff, sumptuous wedding clothes, having to sit still while her portrait is being painted? And knowing that she isn't pregnant, she hasn't so far become pregnant, and she knows that it's her duty to provide the heir who will sort of shore up the future of the Ferronese uh, dynasty. So her future hangs very, very much in the balance. And she begins to suspect, as her portrait is being painted, that her husband means to replace her. And at one stage, Alfonso looks at the finished painting and he sighs. Talk about a Freudian slip. He sighs, there she is, my first duchess implying, of course, that there are going to be others and what is going to happen to 
Lucretia. So it's beautifully, it's beautifully written. You will enjoy it. You won't be able to put it down because you want to know what's going to uh, happen. You may know the history and you may think you know what's coming. But don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. That's The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. Well, that's all for this week. Morocco, the marriage uh, portrait, Masetla in the middle of Medique. And don't forget, please, 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 ask me for suggestions or come to me with your own suggestions. How do you find me? Kate at high, remember that's spelled C-H-A-I, Kate at high FM, uh, kate you can also have a look at my own website kate at kateturkington.com or you can come on to the high website itself but i appreciate the emails you have sent and the contact you have sent but keep keep them coming ask me as i say Uh, to talk about things perhaps you would like to talk about or you would like to know about. I'm thinking at some stage of talking about Tibet because I have been to Tibet twice and it was the most life-changing experience. But I don't know whether to talk to you about it because you can hardly go there now. The Chinese have taken over and a lot has changed. But I will tell you that I, I got to Everest Base Camp just... I think it was 11 years ago, very out of breath, I must tell you. But I think because it was such a wonderful country, I really would love, I really would love to talk to you about Tibet because who knows, maybe you can go there and maybe one day you will. So kate at high.co.za, kate at kateturkington.com and I'll talk to you all next week and lots of love and lots of light in your lives at the moment for Hanukkah.